Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Penn Cava. Food prices are going up. Beef, pork, poultry, eggs, cheese, and milk are expected to become even more costly because crops in the Midwest have been damaged by floods. This comes as the cost of gas is at an all-time high in the U.S., forcing some to choose between spending funds on fuel or food. And it's causing even more trouble around the world as developing countries struggle with extreme food shortages. To Paul Roberts, author of The End of Food, it's all connected. Food scarcity, foodborne illness, biofuels production, and industrial farming. He blames the industrialized nations for treating food as if it were any other industrialized product. And in a recent speech, Roberts predicted that food production as we know it cannot carry on as it has. We'll hear Robert's speech this hour on Word for Word. Paul Roberts' previous book, a bestseller, was The End of Oil. A journalist since 1983 and a longtime observer of the energy industry, Roberts has appeared on National Public Radio, the News Hour on PBS and MSNBC. He's also written for the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. Here, then, is Paul Roberts speaking June 18th at the Commonwealth Club of California about his new book, The End of Food. When I began writing the book, we hadn't seen high food prices, so the the idea that, you know, food could literally run out seemed pretty foreign. But what there was the end of, it seemed to me, was the end of confidence in the food system. I, I mean, even before food started getting very expensive... We'd been hearing a steady stream of stories, uh, food safety problems. Uh, Certainly there were concerns about the nutrition, the content of our diet. Uh, We were getting contaminants in our imported food. I mean, I think a lot of people were surprised to discover not only that we were getting contaminated food from China, but that we were getting much food at all from China. You know, the United States is, you know, we like to think of the United States as the biggest exporter of food in the world, the biggest producer, you know, the breadbasket. And in fact, we're, we import more than half of our food in terms of dollar value now. And I think that's really been a wake-up call for folks. On top of that, you know, some of the food we're getting isn't exactly of the best quality. So, you know, we've got a world in which, uh, you know, a billion people are still undernourished, malnourished, and uh, the same world where a billion people are overnourished, which is the politi- politically correct term for being overweight or obese. And, you know, how is that possible? So we've got all these problems that have been sort of circulating around, and we're all familiar with most of them. I mean, we've been reading about them and worrying about them for some time. What I think is, is, is new, and what I argue is new, is that we're beginning to see that there are connections between these problems, and that they, they, they point to a deeper, a deeper flaw, a, a food system that I, I would argue is, is overheating, that, that's built on an unsustainable basis, and, and is really built around... A, a, a flawed premise, and that is this. We felt, and, and I use the term loosely, collectively, in the sort of editorial sense, we felt that we, if we could learn to produce food like any other consumer product, like any other commodity, that we would really have triumphed. We really would have figured out this puzzle that's bedeviled humanity for thousands of years. And if we could take the processes that we'd mastered in making cars or tires or TV sets or toys and apply them to food, we'd be able to produce food in great volumes at very low prices, and we'd be able to move it rapidly around the planet. We'd be able to do all the things that our grandparents and great-grandparents dreamed of doing. And to a point, we've succeeded. We can make food very much like uh, we can any other commodity. But what I think we're discovering now is that at a certain point, at a certain threshold, the food simply refuses to act like a commodity. It refuses to be industrialized. And it's in this sort of resistance. And I know I'm, you know, anthropomorphizing here to beat the band, but in this, it's in this resistance that I think a lot of these problems arise. And it's only going to be in sort of understanding this resistance, this refusal to be industrialized, that we're going to solve these problems. So one of the examples that I like to use is the case of biofuels. Now, I know we're talking about energy, but of course there's a relationship between energy and food. And if you think about it, biofuels was the win-win. We were going to take what we had in abundance, overabundance, grain, and turn it into fuel. And we were going to solve our energy problems and actually lift, you know, give farmers better prices. So we decided, well, we'll subsidize. We'll, We'll pay, we'll give a tax credit of 51 cents for every gallon of biofuels that we make. 
and since it takes, uh, you can get about three gallons of biofuel or ethanol from a bushel of corn, what that meant was that these biofuel refiners had about $1.50 extra that they could bid for the price of corn above what a kind of a normal buyer could. And, what, and they did bid it. They bid the price up. And here's what happened. Farmers saw that they could get more selling their corn to biofuels refiners, so they did. And not only that, they began growing more corn and less of other crops because corn's paying the most, why not? So if you were going to plant soybeans next year, maybe you'd plant corn. Cotton, no, you'd plant corn. Wheat, you'd plant corn. Even hay, you would plant corn if you could get away with it. And so what happened was the land for these other crops shrunk, and so even as the price of corn went up, so did the price for these other commodities. So if you could, if you could have viewed the United States from one of those satellites and watched uh, you know, time motion photography, you would have she- seen the corn belt sort of spreading out, you know, north and south and east and west, becoming larger at the expense of all these other crops. So you can see how ethanol was linked to the food system, even though we didn't really under, or many of us didn't really understand how that was going to happen. And there's another way that's linked, too. If you're a farmer who has been feeding uh, corn to your pigs and suddenly corn is too expensive, you'll feed another grain. You'll feed oats. You'll feed millet, whatever you can find, which means the demand for those grains will go up, and so will the price. So what we did is we set in motion this, this huge ripple effect through the economy driving up the price. And I don't know how many people get up the first thing in the morning and you look at corn prices. Okay, I do. And, and you know, three years ago, corn was trading at a buck eighty-five a bushel. And today it's about $7.5 a bushel. Now, that's a lot of money. I mean, it's a big difference. And if you're a corn farmer, you are paying more for fertilizer and more for other inputs, but you're making some money for the first time in probably 20 years. The downside, of course, is for people that depend on that corn. Now, in this country, we could do with more expensive food. We really could. Most of us, most of us can't afford to pay more for our food. The average household spends about actually nine cents of every household dollar on food. And this is down from about 50 cents of every household dollar at the turn of the last century. So we've come a long way. The story is quite different when you go to somewhere like you know, Mexico or Kenya uh, or any you know, dozens of other poorer countries where the fraction of the household uh, expenditure that's put toward food is you know, 60 or 70 or 80 percent. So when you see grain prices triple and quadruple, you see people without any hope. I mean, they simply have lost the main staple of their diet. It's gone. And, and what's you know, particularly ironic is that many of these countries, we and other big exporters, have spent the last 20, 30 years telling, you don't need to grow the food yourselves. All right? In fact, it's kind of stupid to have tens of millions of small, inefficient farmers growing food when in the United States and in Europe, we grow it much more efficiently on these huge farms. We can pretty much guarantee you an endless supply of low-cost grain in exchange for you opening up your borders and letting it in. And it's a great deal until recently. So now we've, you know, quadrupled the price of corn, and we're still sort of talking about free trade, but in a much lower voice. So what's the lesson from the biofuels debacle? I mean, there's a lot of lessons. You know, food and fuel don't mix. But to me, one of the key lessons is, as as a species, we still don't approach these problems as if they were connected. We still want to see food as its sort of discrete, independent sector that we can mess with without worrying about any effects outside it. And we'd like to see energy in the same way. And we don't like the idea that one, tinkering with one messes with the other. It bugs us because what it means is that we might not know what we're doing. And in fact, that's, that's really the takeaway here, that we've spent the last couple hundred years imagining that we could break the world up into little pieces and, and make each of those pieces more efficient. We could take a farm that where the guy used to raise livestock and grain, and vegetables, and we could split up all those functions, and we could learn to do it much more efficiently, raise pigs on these huge you know, farms with gigantic poop lagoons, and have gigantic corn farms, and raise our vegetables you know, in, in equally large farms, and that the system wouldn't mind, that it was okay to do that. And what we're learning is that you can't break the system apart without having substantial problems. So... In, in researching this book, I kept, I've, I kept coming across instances where we, we continue to make that mistake. We continue to you know, imagine that we can solve one problem or address one problem and not look at the ramifications. And one of my favorite, and this is where we're going to kind of get into some dicey uh, details, but you're grown-ups. It's, uh, it, it involves chicken and fish, all right? And it's back in the late 1940s. And there's fishermen on the Hudson River about an hour outside of New York, and they are just noticing something really bizarre about the fish they're catching. They're getting bigger every year. 
And, and generally speaking, fishermen don't complain about big fish, at least none that I've ever known. But the problem here was that these fish were being hooked downstream from a pharmaceutical company. And so there was some concern that this might not have been an entirely natural phenomena. So eventually these fish stories get back to the pharmaceutical company and this scientist on staff there, a guy named Thomas Jukes, he decides to look into it. And he discovers that what's happening is there are these huge piles of fermentation waste that are... I think just dumped right in the river. They don't specify. And, and that's left over from the process that the factory uses to make its hot new antibiotic tetracycline. And what's happening is this fermentation mash is getting into the river and it's getting into the fish and the fish are getting bigger. Now, why? Well, Juke speculates, and it turns out he's right, that what's happening is the antibiotic is getting into the fish's guts and it's killing off the infections that are just there routinely. And because the fish is no longer having to devote calories to fighting infection, it can devote that to what? To adding tissue. And it does. And Jukes discovers that tiny doses, they call them sub-therapeutic, fed to little chicks, baby chicks, will increase growth by 25% on the same amount of feed. And it, and it happens with turkeys. It happens with donkeys. It happens with cows. In fact, cows not only get bigger, but they'll give more milk. Pigs will get bigger. They'll also have um, uh, more litter, more pigs per litter, larger birth weight. All in the same amount of feed, 25% more growth, same feed. And given that feed is the most expensive input for a livestock producer, this feels like free meat. And, and recall that this is, in the, this is in the post-war period when even in this country there are shortages of meat, prices are very high, and elsewhere in the world there are profound shortages of meat and protein generally. And we're facing not just famine, but you know, entire populations that being protein-deprived are just stunted, both mentally and physically. So the idea that you could, by feeding antibiotics, the new wonder drug anyway, to animals and get essentially free meat must have been hugely appealing. Now, it wasn't you know, for several decades until we were ready to acknowledge that there might have been a problem with feeding a lot of antibiotics to all our meat. Now, the first of all, the livestock industry is entirely addicted to antibiotics. Half of the antibiotics we produce on this planet end up in our livestock. The other problem, of course, is because you're feeding sub-therapeutic doses, you don't kill all the bugs. Of course, you leave a few, and those few happen to be tough, and so they develop resistance and breed more resistance until you have entire populations of pathogens that resist our strongest antibiotics. Right now... I'm sure you've all read about this. We've, we've, we're facing a situation where it may not be too long before we're back in a period, back in a period where we don't have automatic recourse to antibiotics, where if your child or friend has an ear infection or worse, you can't you know, assure yourself that by going to the clinic you're going to get a fix. And this is, this is one of these sort of daunting realities, like, wow. Now, Thomas Jukes spent to his dying day defending the practice of feeding antibiotics to animals because he doubted that resistance was really going to be a problem. He wasn't a bad guy. He was just from a time when we thought that by taking things apart and viewing them separately, we could solve all the world's problems. And, and what makes and the story gets even better or worse, depending on your perspective, because now the meat industry finally recognizes that there are problems in, in this practice. And so they, and they also realize that consumers are getting a little bit sketchy about eating antibiotics. So they've voluntarily reduced, in some cases, completely eliminated antibiotics in meat production. And that's great, except that they haven't changed any other of the practices of meat production. So these animals are still closely packed together, basically walking on their own, you know what, which means that diseases are running rampant through these populations. Now, what happens is when an animal becomes ill, it sort of reverses the process that Thomas Jukes discovered. It gets smaller, and the tough part is, is that because we've so automated our meat processing system, so many of the animals are handled, if you will, by machines. And these machines are designed for animals of a certain size and weight. And when they encounter an animal that is too small or doesn't weigh enough, problems ensue. And in some cases, the animal, things that should have been left on the inside end up on the outside and all over everything, including the chickens, the workers, inspectors, and the machinery. And because the animals in question were ill, what ends up on the outside is often loaded with pathogens. And this is one of the reasons now that the incidence, that the, the rate of detection of bugs like Campylobacter and Listeria in, uh, in the meat case uh, is rising now. After dropping as recently as the early 2000s, it is now coming back up again in significant ways. It's not just some random findings where it's coming back up in poultry. Um, and you, you'll see similar uh, increases in, across the meat scale, whether we're talking about beef or pork, it's starting to come back up. And here again, here's a case where the industry thought it had a solution to the problem, but it realized, no, they've simply created another problem. And you kind of ask, well, 
how, much long, how, how many more times do we have to do this before we figure it out? And I guess the, the takeaway here is that, you know, we're recognizing now that many of the problems we face are the result of some of these well-intended but poorly considered solutions. That's the first part. And the second part is, going forward, the only way we're going to solve these problems is by recognizing that our solutions have to be carefully vetted and can't simply be sort of the harbingers of a new set of problems. And that's going to be very tough because we are not used to thinking about that. So what, what, what is sort of driving this here? What is the problem? And again, I, I mentioned that you know, we, we're, we're building food as if it were a commodity. And food doesn't like that. It simply resists. If, if you consider... And food is unsuitable, really, to a sort of an industrial process. I mean, to a point, it works perfectly, just like any other commodity. And then, at a certain point, it simply stops. I mean, consider what we've had to do to our food to make it more manufacturable. All our crops have had to be re-engineered to be more sort of readily harvestable and manufacturable. Our livestock has had to be re-engineered to be more uniform. And even then, the food, this re-engineered food, is still so fragile and so damaged by the process that we have to fix it. We have to fix it with additives. We have to repair the flavor. We have to repair the color and texture. On top of that, the processes by which we produce, the industrial processes are so hard on the land, you know, uh, rob the soil of so many nutrients, uh, cause so many uh, contamination problems to the water, that we're actually undermining the very natural resource base that we need to make the food. And yet this is all sort of in the natural course of producing food. We've reached that point. So I guess the question is, we, we're, I guess the question is, how, what are we going to do about this gap that's opening up between food as a sort of an economic proposition and food as a biological phenomenon? Because that's really what we're facing here. We've got a gap that's widening. Food is a business, and food is a biological phenomenon. And I would argue that it's in that gap that most of the problems arise, and it's also the, the solving these problems is going to involve basically closing that gap again. So where does this really begin? Where does it start and I think the genesis of some of the problems that we're seeing, I mean, you can go back to the 40s, you can go back to the 1880s when we first learned about fertilizers, but really where, this, where things accelerate are in the 1980s. That's when we really went from a, a system that was designed to lower costs gradually to one that was cr- crushing prices as fast as it could. And one of the, one of the, one of the players was McDonald's. In, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, McDonald's had a huge problem. Beef had suddenly become public enemy number one. It was very expensive, and it had been discovered to be a health problem. And this was a real bit of bad news for McDonald's, which is essentially built around meat, beef, and, and little, little else, french fries maybe. So they're looking for a new meat. And they settled on chicken for a couple of reasons. One, it was sort of healthier. It was more acceptable to ethnic groups. And this was important because McDonald's was going to march and go globally. And uh, third, it, chicken is more amenable to the new manufacturing processes that were then kind of coming up, including uh, mechanical separation. Now, for the, the few of you who don't know what that is, that's where you take a, a whole chicken and basically push it through a sieve. And what you end up with is this slurry, which you then can um, amend with all sorts of flavorings and additives that will make it into a paste. And you can take that paste and form it into all sorts of things, uh, franks or patties, or in the case of McDonald's, nuggets. And these nuggets could be uh, made in a big central factory and then um, breaded and deep-fried and then frozen and then shipped to the franchises and reheated and served with dipping sauces. I know you're familiar with this. (laughs) Well, do you also remember how successful they were? I was looking back at some of the the news footage, and uh, there's places where people line up around the the, the, the McDonald's thing to get their McNuggets. I know no one here was even related to someone that did that, but I'm just saying (laughs) that it, it happened. And by the end of that first year, I believe it was 82 or 83, McDonald's, a burger joint, is the number two purveyor of chicken in the country. So what does this tell everyone else? Let's sell chicken. And so everyone just jumps into chicken. It's the chicken revolution. You've got you know, Wendy's selling chicken, Burger King. You have all of the you know, regular restaurants. You have all of the makers of frozen chicken. I mean, it just it went nuts. And the chicken industry was quite happy to comply. So you have these chicken farmers expanding their flocks. But then they suddenly realize that they don't just need more chickens, they need a different kind of chicken. Because what they're realizing is that American consumers like white meat. And it also turns out that white meat is much easier to bind. It's much easier to bind into nuggets. Dark meat is harder to do. So it turns out that the demand for, for, for white meat actually is no longer matches the size of the chicken. Chicken only has so much white meat, so we need a chicken with bigger, bigger breasts. I can say that here. 
And so the, the breeders set out to design a chicken with bigger breasts, and they figured out at a molecular level what it is about a chicken's particular gene makeup that causes it to partition or sort of shunt meat to particular parts. And they would get these, you know, so they, they come up with these. And I don't know if, how many people raise chickens here. Come on, you can... All right, then you probably know that the, 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 the meat birds that are now, uh, that you can buy, uh, growth, uh, they, they're so big that they can't even walk, really. And they're just, they're massive. And um, they grow quickly, too. I mean, in, in 1930, it took uh, 16 weeks for a bird to reach slaughter weight of like two and a half pounds. And now it takes six weeks to reach a slaughter weight of about six or seven pounds. So they're like sumo wrestlers. They're huge. And... Um, and this was fantastic, and it was like we'd figured out a way to sort of conquer this gap between you know, what the market demanded and what we could supply. But it turned out that we, we didn't only need lot big chickens with big breasts. We needed it to be super, super cheap because if you recall, this is when the, 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 the burger wars were really firing up, and, and McDonald's and Wendy's would go at each other, and chicken was like their prime weapon. And everyone wanted to be able to offer a dollar chicken product. And so they would, they would tell their suppliers excuse me, but we are like huge customers of yours. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to not only come up with big-breasted chickens and lots of them, but you're going to sell them to us for an incredibly low price. And further, you're going to let us come into your factories and look at your books and see how much it costs for you to make that chicken because we want to know if you're ripping us off and if you can lower the price even further. So these big producers, Tyson's, Pilgrim's Pride, they didn't have any choice. There wasn't anyone else they felt they could sell to. So they began to cut prices, and they, they did it in the usual ways. They expanded production. Um, you know, they, it used to be that you could get by on two plants with a t- combined uh, output of 32 million birds a year. Now, to break even, you need four plants and a combined output of a quarter billion birds a year, and that's just to break even. And, and so you had to, and then you had to automate. You had to as, you know, use as many machines as possible to, to, make the, uh, to take out the labor costs. And where you needed labor, you used... Cheap labor. So, of course, you began moving your plants out of the Midwest and north and into the southern states where unions aren't very strong, or you moved them completely offshore, or you simply hired illegal aliens and brought them in. And you may have noticed about every week or so we get another story about a big INS bust at a meatpacking plant. Well, that's really part of the problem here. And finally, finally, the, um, the, purveyor, the producers of chicken, as the producers of other foods, began buying their ingredients from the low bidder, which is how we ended up in China, you know, buying our soy protein and our wheat gluten and God knows what else. And, and I have to ask you about China. I mean, what exactly were we thinking? You know, here's a country that has a problem, sell, you know, essentially is, is infamous for exporting, you know, low-quality uh, consumer electronics, low-quality toys, low-quality furniture, low-quality clothes, but we thought it would be okay for them to make our food. I mean, you know, and the thing is, the Chinese are struggling. They're desperately trying to upgrade their system. I mean, they don't like sending bad food to their biggest customer any more than we like getting it. But it's China, there's a gap between what China wants to do and what it can do. China's essentially where we were about 75 years ago, about the time that Sinclair wrote The Jungle, you know, a rapidly industrializing, expanding system, thousands of different players all competing, but no regulatory system that's strong enough to really monitor it. And, you know, the estimate is that China needs to spend $100 billion upgrading its food system, $100 billion, before it will come close to matching minimum Western standards. And the fact that we can buy our food cheaply there, that low price that you see, really reflects the fact that China hasn't spent that $100 billion. And who knows how, and it's, you know, the, the sort of the best case scenario is it's going to take them 10 years to make those upgrades. And yet we are still importing a lot of our ingredients from China because, first of all, it's still the cheapest, and second, they own so much of the market we really can't find other places to buy it. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the consequence. I mean, if you think back in the 80s, it looked like we had sort of we had this revolution going. We had food that was very cheap, and and you know this this is still you know this was for a generation that could still remember the 70s when food was expensive, and many of their parents could remember times when food was quite expensive and even rationed. So cheap food was no mean thing. It was a triumph. It would only be, you know, a decade or so later that we'd realize there'd been a huge series of costs for this cheap food and that we were going to begin paying them. So not only was food cheap and perhaps unsafe, but we had problems with obesity. We had problems with the nutritional content of the food. And eventually, eventually we began to have problems with the safety of the meat. 
You're listening to Paul Roberts, author of The End of Food. He spoke at the Commonwealth Club of California in mid-June. This is word for word from American public media. So the question then becomes, what's valuable here? What price should food have? I mean, should we all be paying more for food? This is a very tough thing to suggest when food prices are high. I mean, there's a great report out of the Pew Trust where they, they, they went and analyzed all the practices of factory farming for meat production. They basically you know, said, look, it, this all has to change. And what's really important is that the meat industry agrees, finally. You have some of the biggest meat producers in the world acknowledging that they need to phase out the practices of the big, uh, you know, factory farm feedlots, for example, or antibiotics, feeding antibiotics. The problem is every one of the practices that has been identified for a phase-out has also been central to driving down the costs of meat over the past 50 years. And so we're faced with the prospect of if we want our meat to be safe and produced in a sustainable way, we're going to have to be paying substantially more for it. Now, how much more? Well... I don't know how many people here have priced grass-fed beef, for example, but you know it is more expensive. And so is that really what we're facing here in terms of meat? Maybe so. And a couple of years ago, if you'd suggested paying more for meat, people would have said, okay, that's fine. Now, with prices you know, rising up high in this country and with people actually facing mal- malnutrition elsewhere, to suggest higher food costs seems um, absolutely brutal. It seems completely unthinking, and yet... It's becoming clear that we're going to have to spend more for our food. This is one of the contradictions we're having to face here. And this is something, if you think about it, we haven't faced a global food crisis in a couple generations here. I mean, I would bet that for most of the people in this room, the, the sort of hunger stories that we've been reading about have primarily been localized. They've been regional. They've been in sub-Saharan Africa. They've been maybe in India and Pakistan, Bangladesh. They've been in certain small poverty-stricken areas in this country. But they have not been broadly global, and they they haven't been democratic at all. And suddenly we're confronting a food crisis that is global, that is almost democratic. And this is something we haven't quite gotten our heads around. I mean, you know, going back to the whole biofuels debate, people look at that and they blame that as the the cause uh, of uh, food prices going up. And it is having a huge effect. I mean, you can't, you know, the United States, again, is the biggest corn producer and exporter in the world We've quadrupled the fraction of the crop going into biofuels. It has had an effect on price. That said, you have to keep in mind that biofuels is a political entity. It's created by a subsidy. If Congress decided to, and Congress is coming under a lot of pressure, if Congress decided to get rid of that subsidy, biofuels would go away. But you can't say that about population growth. You know, right now, we're, we're looking over the next 30 years at about 4 billion extra people on this planet. And what's critical about that is that these are not just going to be more people. They're going to be richer people. And most of them will be in the developing world where diets are still catching up. And people are eating more what? They're eating more meat. And again, the thing about meat is it's resource intensive. It takes 8 pounds of grain to make a single pound of meat. So as this population becomes wealthier and eats more meat, which is, you know, their ex- has been their expectation since the beginning the demand that it's going to put on the grain markets is substantial. We'll need to produce a billion tons of grain on top of what we're already producing today in order to meet that need. And nobody knows where that grain is going to come from. You know, the, the, the old-fashioned way of, of producing more food was you plowed up more acres. Well, we have run to a point now where we don't have that many um, arable farm acres that are readily available. Most of them are already growing crops. Most of what's left are doing things like supporting forests. You know, Brazil's massive agricultural expansion, which you may have read about, has come almost entirely at the expense of its rainforest, which will have huge environmental and political and cultural costs. Well, we've run into land scarcity before. We've always found ways to increase the yield per acre, grow more bushels per acre. Um, We've done it before with fertilizers, and we'll do it again with transgenic crops. That's the expectation. And farmers will have new tools, but they will also have new constraints. I mean... We, you know, we already know that oil, this is a very um, oil-intensive business, making food. It takes a lot of oil for tractors. It takes a lot of oil to take the, you know, move the food from the farm to the factory and from the factory to the store. Well, keep in mind that this is a food system that was designed for oil at $15 a barrel. And, oil, and the fact that oil is probably going to be at you know, 10 times that figure in the foreseeable future really raises questions as to how sustainable this food system is. And there's a huge focus on oil, but consider natural gas. Natural gas, like oil, is becoming scarce and more expensive, and natural gas is also the primary ingredient to make what? Fertilizers. Okay, fertilizers have more than tripled in price over the past 12 months. And keep in mind that 40% of the calories we produce on this planet are directly attributable to the availability of cheap nitrogen fertilizer. 
So imagine we're going to get through the next 50 years and another 4 billion people with fertilizer that's three to four to five times above the historic trend. It's breathtaking. I mean, how is that going to happen? And, you know, fertilizer is just the beginning. You need a lot of water to grow food. It takes, on average, and I'm sure you've seen this figure, 1,000 tons of water to grow a ton of grain or up to that amount. So that means that to grow this billion tons of additional grain that we're going to need by 2030, we'll need around a trillion tons of water a year, and this on a planet that's already seriously overdrawing its water supplies. You know, there are countries, I mean, India and China now support one-sixth of their populations on irrigation systems that are overdrawing the aquifers. They are now having to drill down thousands of feet to catch these falling water tables. In fact, we're running into the same problems here in, in the United States. Some countries are now overcoming these water shortages by importing their water in the form of soybeans and corn. The Chinese do this a lot. They would much rather have farmers in Argentina and Brazil use their water and then ship the grain to China rather than use water at home. But given that we'll probably need about 20% more water than we believe is currently available, this water trade that we've developed only works to a point. So we're going to have to find a way to produce more food with less water. And lastly, we've got climate. We, I mean, everyone understands sort of intrinsically that, that if temperatures change, if rainfall changes, it, it's going to impact your, your crops. But we focused really heavily on Africa because we can already see how climate's affecting output there. And we can see that, for example, that their, their ability to grow wheat is probably going to be gone by the middle of the century. And since Africa's already a basket case, there's a lot of concern what climate means. But what we need to focus more on is what climate's going to do to countries like the United States. Because the, the, under most of the scenarios, we're going to see more weather like we're seeing out in the Midwest right now. And people are describing these floods that have pretty much wiped out most of the planting of the corn and soybeans for this year. Um, they're describing that as a 50-year flood. And then they describe it as a 100-year flood. Well, under most climate scenarios, it's going to be like a once or twice a decade flood. So we're setting ourselves up for a situation which, just at the time that regions like Africa are most in need of our exportable surplus, we won't be able to do it. And this is sort of, and, and we're just kind of merrily trundling on toward that with, you know, we're dealing with things like, we're complaining about things like ethanol. We're saying, well, transgenic crops or GM crops are going to solve everything. We're not even close. We're not even on the same page. You know, the crisis that is looming in front of us is one that's going to require a completely different way of thinking. Now, um, I was actually giving a talk a little while ago on the oil situation, how glum it was. And a woman raised her hand and said, you know, my husband couldn't make it tonight. He, uh, he, he stayed at home because he wanted to finish your book, which he hadn't finished. But he's prone to depression. And I'm wondering if I should call him up and tell him to stop reading. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and I do, I do really dwell in the, the, sort of the bad news, and not just to sell books. I mean, believe me. But because you have to get down to the, the rock ribs of the problem before you're able to start solving it. Because what we do, we, we've kind of made a profession in this country and in societies like ours of dealing only with the surface problems, you know, rearranging the deck chairs. We really haven't gotten down to the, the basics. And until we do, we're going to be here you know, basically every five years, every ten years, having the same conversation. Well, actually, it won't be the same. It'll be, it'll be a worse. It'll be more gloomier because we'll have used up more of the resource base that's so critical. But having bummed you out, I want to offer some some evidence that there's, there's actually a great deal of hope. And there's a whole lot, there's, there's so many people who are thinking about this crisis, not just as a way to solve it, but as an opportunity to improve the whole system. And, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who are doing research, not just on transgenic, and we'll talk about that in a second, but new ways of making food. For example, reintegrating agriculture so that it's no longer strange to have animals and crops being produced on the same property. There's this really uh, very interesting and enterprising farmer in Japan, uh, name of Fenuro, who has a, written a book called The Power of Duck. And what he does is on a very small, about an eight-acre plot, he raises rice and he f fills his rice ponds with fish and he puts ducks on top of the water and then he separates the ducks who would eat the fish from the fish with a, a thing called with duckweed. And, he use, and the ducks poop in the water, and the fish poop in the water, and it feeds the rice. And the paddling of the little ducklings churns up the nitrogen and fertilizes. And you get this, and he produces enough rice and vegetables and meat to feed 100 of his neighbors and make a tidy income. Now, he, we're talking less than eight acres. He's able to produce that much food. That is so far above the average U.S. output for these big industrial farms, these high-tech, low-cost, very efficient farms, 
that it's embarrassing. And yet it's possible, and he's doing it. Now, it's labor-intensive. He needs to have help. He uses students and, and reporters foolish enough to step on the premises. But the point is that it's a model that works. And it's not like brand new. This is something that has been going on in Asia and other parts of the world for thousands of years. What he's done is he's updated it. Now, what's critical about his model is that he has to look at it each year and decide what's working and what's not and make modifications. In, in the Western model of farming, farmers don't want to have to think about farming. It's not that they're incapable of it. It's not that they you know, don't think farming is a worthy occupation. It's just that they you know, can't afford to stay on the farm all day. They've got to go have an off-farm job so they can get health insurance. So they are glad to see mechanization. They're glad to see Roundup-resistant soybeans because it means they need to think less about farming. Well, we've seen where that leads. And I think the time now is to have, go back to not just labor-intensive farming but intellectually intensive farming. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all head back you know, to 1850, but I think there's great value in a lot of the methods that we've given up. Most of those could be updated, and that's critical. So that's one, one real positive thing. The other positive thing is we're seeing a lot of... Um, you know, interest in farming by consumers. I mean, obviously, farmers' markets are important. Um, you know, people are wanting to grow their <laughs> grow food their own. In fact, many of the companies that make seeds so that you and I can go plant vegetables in our backyard are actually reporting that they're running out because too many people are buying them now. Now, you could, you could say that now this is this is something. This is, these are just amateurs. That, you know, they're gonna you know they'll grow a few things, they'll grow a few melons, and they'll give up. But the point is, that's how farming began, with a bunch of amateurs, with you know, thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of people experimenting on their own. Many of them failed, some of them died, those that succeeded reproduced, and they gradually got better. That's part of what we're going to have to do again. We're going to have to allow food production and farming, and just food generally, to be a sort of a collective function that we all take part in, and not something that we simply outsource to large companies. I mean, if you think about it, that's what we've done over the past 40 years. We've outsourced. And it made a lot of sense. I mean, again, you know, at the beginning of the last century, we were spending half of our household hours producing and processing and cooking food. And most of it was being done by the women. That wasn't an ideal situation. Now we're down to a half an hour. We, the average household spends a half an hour a day making food. And so when you suggest, well, let's start cooking again. And cooking, I mean, this sounds Martha Stewart, and I'm sorry, but cooking is a way to re-empower yourself when it comes to food. You control the food that comes into the house. You, you have to think about the ingredients. You have to plan menus. You have to stock a pantry. You have to be engaged intellectually with your food. We've been disengaged for too long. Well, people will say, that's great. I would love to do that. You know, I would love to cook, and I would love to learn how to cook. Of course, I don't know how, but I'm going to, I'd love to take lessons, and I'm going to remodel the kitchen. I mean, how many people have remodeled the kitchen and never use it? But, but the point is that they'll say, I don't have time. I'm sorry. I've got a, this half an hour a day. And you've got to say, okay, well, that same average person that has just a half an hour a day to cook somehow manages to find four and a half hours a day to watch television. I mean, give me a break. Now, they'll say, well, but some of these, many of these hours are spent watching cooking shows. <laughs> I mean, they are. But, you know, my argument is that if we're going to sort of give food the priority it deserves, we're going to have to stop watching other people cook. And, the, and then there's, there's a couple of other things that need to... There's no, the, the reason that we're here, not just here tonight, but the reason that we're sort of asking these questions is that, you know, no one pointed a gun to our head and said, you will eat this way, and you will live this way, and you will stop cooking, and you will rely on convenience foods. We did those because they made sense. On a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis, it made sense to have someone else do your processing for you. I mean, it was much better from a woman's standpoint to sort of trade her household hours for labor hours and earn money and use some of that income to buy the food from someone else. It just made much more economic sense. It, you know, cooking, when you're having to do it every day for a huge family, isn't that fun. And you, and you can go through the process of producing food, and, and every step of the way is not necessarily fun. And so it makes sense that we would be here. And it also makes sense, or needs to make sense, that stepping back from this process and sort of re-engaging in our food is also going to require us to work a little bit more with our food. It's not going to be easy anymore. You know, and it's not going to be as convenient as it was. I mean, think of the advantage that we've had of year-round seasonal food. I mean, your non-seasonal food. Basically, you can go to the supermarket and get a salad anytime you want. You can get tomatoes, quote-unquote tomatoes, anytime you want. 
And we've all gotten so used to that. In fact, I am sort of offended if I can't get my big box of salad at the supermarket because I'm so used to being able to have that. And the, the problem is, you know, seasonality is like, you know, it's uh, maybe this lasts for a month, this lasts for a week. And we don't like that. We've gotten away from that because I think my argument is that seasonality is sort of like death. It reminds people that life is, life is transitory. It's fleeting. If you, if, you know, this wonderful pomegranate is only in season for two weeks or we can only get this certain kind of chard for nine days, then you're, you're forced to confront your own mortality. And supermarkets don't want you to think about mortality, okay? They want you to think that if you can buy it, you can, it, that you can have it, you can own it. You can, and the promise of, of always being able to get everything all the time keeps us from worrying about that. But we'll probably have to go back to that notion, which means confronting not just you know, a short season for real strawberries, but our own mortality. And that's something that, whether we're talking about food or any other consumer product, that's not in the agenda of the companies that are selling this. They have no interest in us thinking, you know, I'm not like anti-business. I'm just saying that it's been very convenient for them to have us think that no matter what it is we want or need, we can buy it. And food is just the latest kind of venue where that's happening. And we need to take that back. The food companies, I mean, face it, they will sell you anything that you're willing to buy that doesn't kill you outright. They absolutely will. They don't care if you go home and overeat. I mean, they would like it if you survive long enough to continue buying. And they imagine that you, they look at you as a 30-year cash stream. But the point is that, you know, if you go buy the, two for, you know, the, the family-sized M&Ms because it was 30, you know, 30 cents more and it gave you, you know, twice as much, and you go and eat it all, you know, they really don't care. Or what about this? Why is it that Halloween candy is available in August? Okay, what is up with that? Well, the hope is that you'll all better get some just in case because what? You know, the, there's going to be a flood? No. The idea is that you're going to consume it all. You're going to put it on top of the refrigerator where it's out of the way except you know it's there. So you're going to eat it all. And then, you know, in the second week of August, you'll have to go back and get some more. And they've extended every holiday. They turn it into a candy holiday, first of all. And then they've, you know, created a reason to sell it. And you think, okay, that's not in our interest, that, you know, that has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our health, improving our health, improving our happiness. I mean, do you think we're happier after consuming an entire bag of Reese's peanut butter? No. But the point is that that is, that is in their business model. They have to continue to sell more and more every year or they go out of business. So waiting for them to solve this problem is simply don't hold your breath. And in the same way, government. I mean, government is probably more inclined to be thinking along our, you know, be reflective of our agenda but the truth is that they're captured by many of these special interests. They also are slow. They're slow to move. I mean, think about it. The Bush administration, and I realize that the Bush administration is not necessarily the model of, any, of you know, it's not a generic administration, one would hope. But the point is that they are refusing to, to, to consider that biofuels is a bad policy, despite the mounting evidence that is destroying the food markets, despite mounting evidence that it does not have the climate benefits that were advertised, despite mounting evidence that it's a disaster, they refuse to, to relinquish it. Why? Because they don't have another alternative energy policy to offer. We're sitting here with soaring gas prices. For the first time, Americans are mad enough at gas prices to change the way they're living, to not only be mad but to be scared. These Americans, or many of them, are going to remember to vote in November and the Bush administration has no alternative energy. It, that's it. It simply has biofuels. That's the only thing it can offer. And it, it, is, it is dreadfully afraid that if it relinquishes that, it'll have nothing, and it'll lose even, you know, Republicans will lose even harder. That's not a way to run an energy policy or a food policy, and yet that's where we are. And you know, my hope is that by next January, who's ever in the White House will be forced by a number of, you know, by various pressures to, to revisit this. But, it, but we're also going to have to look hard not just at biofuels, but longer term. And I think that consumers are finally ready to have that happen. You know, we've been concerned about safety. We've been concerned about contamination. We've been concerned about nutrition. Now we've got food prices. And I think, I think we've reached a threshold where we're ready to pay attention. Paul Roberts is best-selling author of The End of Oil. He's out with a new book, The End of Food, which he talked about in mid-June at the Commonwealth Club of California. You're hearing him on Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. After his speech, Paul Roberts took questions from the audience. What we're talking about today is what Malthus talked about 150 years ago with uh, some technological uh, delay thrown into the system. 
That's a really good question. So why is this crisis any different from those that we keep running into every 50 years? I mean, don't we find ourselves here every half century or so with populations growing and foods seemingly scarce? And don't we also solve the problem with technology? We will come up with new technologies. We already are. But as I mentioned, we're going to face constraints that are going to make it very hard to do it the same way. I mean, most of our food technologies, most of the technologies we came up with to solve the last several crises have been very energy intensive. They've been, they've been um, inherently dependent on, on oil. And the fact that oil is significantly more expensive means that while we'll still be able to use some of these technologies, we won't be able to use them as freely. And you could go down the list of inputs. You could look at oil, you could look at fertilizer, you can look at water. We're going to have to do this more efficiently. What it comes down to is we're going to have to have a conversation about meat. A lot of the debate seems to turn around the contrast between choosing a diet based on essentially industrial food, organic food, or now uh, more recently locally grown food. Could you comment particularly on the latter two? Well, local and organic. I mean, local is the new organic um, I guess the good news about local is that it's exciting to see people reengaging with their food to the degree that they're interested, that it's important to them where it comes from. They want to know where it comes from. They recognize that local, locally produced food is often much tastier and better for them, and they like to support the people that are growing it, and they just like to sort of be close to the means of production. It's important for them. That's, I think, a positive, and there's, there's intangible value in that that can't you can't necessarily assign a, a monetary value to but it's extremely important that said we can't solve this problem with local production you, you can't feed a planet a country this size and certainly not a planet this populated simply with local production this country is blessed with you know wonderful natural resources we could we can feed ourselves countries like china and india are far beyond that point local production simply doesn't hold for them they're going to require a global food economy. They're going to need to import food from us. And I think that the, the challenge when, when we insist on, when we kind of go to the black and white and say, well, it's either local or global, we're going to have to get past that and understand that there's a fair way to trade globally. It has to be done. You have to be smart about it. You have to be careful about it. But you can't imagine that everything can be produced locally. Consider the energy or carbon footprint. If, if you take a train load of produce grown in Salinas Valley... And, and ship it up to where my, my neck of the woods up in Seattle. It is far, it, we will burn far less fuel and create far less carbon than if I take 50 pickup trucks to transport the produce from local farms outside of Seattle into the farmer's market. And yet that is really the model of, of local production. It's individuals transporting it. Now, we have the capacity to rebuild the infrastructure that this country used to have that connected the, the countryside outside of cities to the markets inside the cities. You know, we had trains, we had local spurs, you know, but we need to remember that that infrastructure in many cases is no longer in place. Can it be put back in place? Yes. Is it worth doing? I absolutely believe so. But until those moves have been made, don't assume automatically that local is better. And please don't write off global you know, just because there have been huge mistakes made in the way that global commerce is conducted today. You know, it's, we're going to rely on global. There's going to be a huge component of global trade in the future. And what we have to make sure is that it's done the right way. How do you get through a meal without allowing yourself to contemplate the system that brought it to you? <laughs> Drink heavily. It's, it's not the end of scotch, thank God. I'm careful about where I get meat and other foods. I try to support local production as much as possible. I try to you know, talk to my kids about food and food safety and food issues without you know, driving them away from the table. My son said, you know, you've got to come up with an, a name. Your next book has got to have a more appealing title, you know. <laughs> he wants the next one to be The Beginning of Cake. <laughs> but I, I think that you have to use, whether it's the dining room table, a, as a sort of a, a learning moment. I mean, I hate language like that, but really there are opportunities where you teach yourself and others, particularly kids, about what's going on and the ramifications of their choices. You know, and you look at a chicken breast... I can use that word here again. And, and you look at it, and you, you see the cuts in it, and you know that someone did that. Probably weren't, wasn't getting paid very much. And then you look at you get these huge bags, and they're so cheap, and you know, that doesn't work. That system can't work. I mean, how does that work? It doesn't. It only works because someone is taking it in the... Someone is, is paying a high cost for that. And you know, I come home from the grocery store, and I'm like unpacking things and saying, okay, I don't know anything about this. I don't know where the ingredients come from or who made it or where or anything about them. And 
I couldn't, but, but, or this, what would happen if the system broke down or part of the system broke down? I could, could I produce this myself? You know, how much of this could I replace? And it's really scary when you start doing that. I mean, if you want a sobering moment, go through your, your grocery basket and just think what you would do, you know, and you're kind of assuming the whole system won't break down, that maybe just pieces that you won't be able to get maybe this kind of produce or this kind of, you know, special K or whatever. But, but it makes you realize that we're so dependent on a system that we're, it's entirely, it's so distant from us on nearly every level. And you look at that and you say, okay, I have a choice. I can just ignore it because there's nothing I can do about it and it's going to do, it's going to take whatever, you know, direction it's going to go and if it breaks down, fine. Or you can decide, no, I'm going to change the way I interact with this system and I'm going to do it a step at a time. You know, I'm going to maybe go meatless once a week or I'm going to choose to make sure that 10% or 20% or 30% of my produce is local or I'm just not going to eat tomatoes when they're not in season. I mean, that shouldn't be too hard given that they're not really tomatoes. But the point is that, you, you know, people get really afraid that because they can't solve the whole thing, they can't grow all their own food, they can't buy completely locally, that there's no point. And that's, that's just what they want you to believe. You, you can't let yourself fall into that defeatist attitude because we can always fail. I mean, failure is always an option. It is. And, and we'll never have a perfect solution. But the perfect is the enemy of the good. We know how bad things are going to get. We can, we can easily imagine that. What we have to start imagining is how we step back from that abyss. And it's small steps. And they're steps that we have to take. But, you know, I, I think probably the most encouraging thing is that you guys are here to, you know, to hear a person talk about the end of food and why it's not really the end of food. Have a good evening and bon appetit. Paul Roberts, author of The End of Food, speaking June 18th at the Commonwealth Club of California. If you missed part of this hour's speech by Paul Roberts, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program, as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and hear speakers such as Michael Pollan, author of In Defense of Food, Tim Weiner, who writes about the CIA in Legacy of Ashes, and Mary Tillman, author of Boots on the Ground by Dusk, about her late son, Pat Tillman. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pencava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.